this is a recording of the panel, The Power of Graphic Novels, presented as part of the Virginia Festival of the Book in Charlottesville, Virginia, on March 23, 2019. The panel included Kim Crimstein, Brooklyn Allen, and James Stern, and was moderated by me, Warren Craghead. We had some technical difficulties at the beginning of the recording, so we lost the introductions and the beginning part of Ken Krumstein's uh, presentation. So I'm gonna go ahead and do the introductions again and go right into his presentation. The last person to speak as part of the panel is James Sturm. He's the author of Off Season. He lives in Vermont where he helps run a cartooning school that he co-founded, the Center for Cartoon Studies. His graphic novels include The Golem's Mighty Swing and Market Day. He's a contributing editor to Slate and the co-founder of Seattle's bi-weekly newspaper, The Stranger. The second person to speak is, uh, will be Brooklyn Allen, a co-creator and illustrator of the Lumberjanes series. Allen is a graduate of the Savannah College of Art and Design and now lives in Richmond, Virginia. And uh, speaking first will be Ken Krimstein, author of The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt. He's been published in The New Yorker, The Wall Street Journal, Chicago Tribune, McSweeney's, and many others. He lives in Chicago. His book, The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt, chronicles the amazing life of one of the 20th century's greatest thinkers as she revels in interwar Germany, escapes the Nazis more than once, and eventually finds a home in New York City. So we'll pick up uh, right where we have the recording start, which, uh, as I said, is a couple minutes into his presentation. Thanks for listening. So it became this, The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt. And, um, you know, as I was writing the book, her biography gave me a lot of gifts. It was kind of amazing. Uh, the fact that she did have two very dramatic escapes, and then I had looked into my um, Aristotle, because I went to Grinnell, and I read his book, The Poetics, and found out there have to be three acts. So I had to figure out the third one. <laughs> but there was something that she said, and I kept this over my desk when I was working, and it gave me a lot of um, power and encouragement. And she said, storytelling reveals meaning without committing the error of defining it. And typically, for Hannah Arendt, there's a lot packed into that thought. But any of us who are here like stories. And stories that, have, that move us tell us things about the world, but not in a one plus one equals two kind of way, in a one plus one equals elephant kind of way, or whatever it might be. <laughs> so that empowered me, because I, I, I set out to tell her story. I wanted to tell a story. But what kind of story? Well, um, it, it, a comic, a comic book, or this or that. This is a biopic. Um, I watch Turner classic movies. I happen to like Edward G. Robinson. This is a really peculiar one called The Story of Dr. Ehrlich's Magic Bullet, which ran on TCM. Does anyone know this movie? OK. Um, it's a very interesting movie, believe it or not, about, check this out, the scientist who discovered a cure for syphilis and won the Nobel Prize for it in the 1930s. I mention that because Dr. Ehrlich uh, figures into my book. But I like biopics. Patton is a biopic. You're probably familiar with that. Um, you know, not a sweet man. You look at his biography, real problems. The movie presents him as that. Uh, really, though, what I'm doing, I think, was most inspired by this particular film, and I like <laughs> films a lot. Does anyone know this movie, A Wrath of God? That's on my top 10 list. That's on my top one list, probably. There's Klaus Kinski looking rather sweet. But Werner Herzog is um, such a brilliant thinker, 
um, and storyteller in fiction and in nonfiction, uh, I realized that this was the, the inspiration for me. So really what I think, he, he defines this as ecstatic truth. And I love that phrase because, you know, the scientist in me says that isn't right. And I'm not really a scientist, so I'm a cartoonist. So I like that. I get that. Ecstatic truth. In fact, um, in his biography, uh, he, or I think it's an interview, he, he's so brilliant. He made a movie, and he said, I wanted to have a quote uh, at the beginning from Pascal, this uh, French mathematician. But Pascal didn't have a quote that was actually exactly right, so I made one up for him and put it in the movie. <laughs> so I thought, that's ecstatic truth. I can live with that. So what I think I made was a time machine. I, I think that's what this is. So this is kind of interesting, finding her face. And those of us that, that labor in these, these fields of, of, of uh, pictures that tell stories, finding the way the character looks is, is super uh, hard and important. Um, and especially when you have somebody that basically goes from childhood to her expiration date, um, how do you keep her looking the same? You know, I, I love Charles Schultz. I think Charles Schultz, Peanuts, like super genius. The only thing that he may have possibly had a little easier than me is that Charlie Brown didn't age. Once he nailed Charlie Brown, which is beyond comprehension, you know, but I had a character that had to age. So I started by looking at a lot of pictures of her, and if you don't know who she is, you know, read the book, you'll find out some more and go <laughs> further, but she was a very striking woman, and she knew it. So I'm trying to get into her character. So this is a picture of her sort of in the 50s, and I can see it's sort of upstate New York, and you can just see, and she's just got this great look, and she's holding a cigarette, ever present. So I tried drawing her, and I almost, Vomited. I mean, this is so bad. So I'm showing you my, my outtakes, okay? I'm trying to show you how we can fail, but since we're all friends, I, I can do that. I tried again, and it was putrescent would be the word. It was horrible. So I looked for some more pictures, and here's another absolutely striking photograph of her. She uh, had just graduated from college. She had moved to Berlin. If you think about this, this is sort of 1929. It looks like it could be shot today. She's got sort of a Himalayan necklace. You can't see the, the cigarette off to the side. Just a great attitude. And so for me, when I'm doing this type of work, not only am I learning how I'm from writing and reading, but the pictures for me are, are information. This was an interesting photo I found of her when she was even younger. And those of you who know Hannah Arendt as the grizzled, you know, kind of tough, this is her as a young, I think she was in high school. And so I'm trying to process all these images, because for me, images are, are as real as words. Terrible. I still couldn't do it. I mean, these are like vomit. Ugh. <laughs> Luckily, I had a lot of studying to do. And then this came up, because the internet is this wonderful thing. And this is her naturalization pa uh, papers. And she was stateless. She was actually a stateless person for 18 years. Okay, That is important. This is her, I mean, this is like a, a driver's license picture. And you can see her with her married name from her second um, husband. But it's a darn good picture. I mean, my driver's license picture is horrible. She managed to have a really interesting picture. So this started to inspire me to get a little bit more into her character. And I was just playing, trying to figure out who she is. And then 
thanks to the fact that the librarians in France never throw anything away and the wonderful internet, this popped up on my Facebook one day. And what this is is her library card from the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris. And it had not been seen since they cleaned out the files over at the Bibliothèque. You can see it's from, I believe it's, it's good from December 14, 1939 until uh, August of 1940. But what's really interesting about this is this is a photograph of Hannah Arendt that had never been seen, except at the library in the 40s. And all of a sudden, this became my Hannah, and I refer to her as Hannah because it isn't, I'm not a, a scholar, you know? It's, but I got this image of her, and now, by now I know about her life, and she's tired. She's working three jobs. She's trying to get children out of Europe. She's got her mother living with her. I mean, she's with philosophers. Yet she still manages to cock the three-quarter view and kind of, I mean, I'm just like, I had never seen that angle of her. And this happened in the midst of it. So all of a sudden, now I'm starting to find out what she looks like. And it's the bone structure and the way the face looks. And here she is um, at uh, the university in, in Germany. And you can actually see, if you look at it, somebody has scratched I love Goethe in there. In the world, <laughs> um, because he hung out there, too. So now you can see I'm starting to find who she is, and it's helping me. So I can like draw her basically with my eyes closed now. But the other thing is, green was a color that she wore, so green became uh, a defining figure, and I had one color in the book. So that was kind of how that worked. But I had these questions, you know, also, like why did this person, arguably one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, end up renouncing philosophy? And I found this very interesting. You know, it would be like Mickey Mantle quitting baseball at the, at the top of his career. Um, what's the life behind the thinking? I'm just, you know, I've read every Beatles biography there is because I want to figure out, like, how they did it. I still don't know. I even went to Liverpool. Here's a photo. You don't even need words. Dudes, Hannah. <laughs> I mean, when I saw that photo, what can you say? I think it's Princeton, but... And then, you know, how could she be so freaking cool to hang out with the likes of everyone? And you may not know these people, but Bertolt Brecht, Walter Benjamin, Marlena Dietrich, Mark Chagall, Billy Wilder, W.H. Auden, Saul Bellow, Randall Jarrell, Mary McCarthy. And this is just the top tier. Another thing that was interesting is I, I think that comics are really well suited to doing this. And uh, I say comics are the perfect tool for scraping the barnacles off history, and Art Spiegelman, you know, the father of us all, said comics are the art of turning time back into space. So I thought that was really good. Um, I, she taught me a lot. Some of it is the power of the new. She's very much about that. Um, Eve Ensler, I was very honored she wrote to me. She saw the book. She's the one who did the vagina monologues. And, she said she was one of the most brilliant radical truth-seeking humans of this century or maybe ever. She risked being a pariah, an outsider, a hated person. In speaking her truth, and in this day of increasing political and techno mind control, she's a doorway, so I thought that was pretty cool. And I'm going to just do one quick scene, and then I'm going to sit down because I have a feeling my time is almost up. Um, so this shows how comics can kind of do abstract ideas. And um, this is late in the book. 
and it says, in thought and indeed to survive in the world, I, she's, it's narrated by her, I erect a firm wall between the public space and the private. My rationale for this barrier is plain to see, and this is the sign that they had over Auschwitz. And then that was an image that I found. And Here she is sitting on a park bench in Greenwich Village with um, St. Augustine, who she really liked. And, but merely identifying the why these things happen isn't enough. I feel compelled to show a way forward. Banishing falsehood is just the beginning. So for an answer, I turn to my old friend, St. Augustine. And they're chatting, you can see. And we know there are many, many truths for many people. And, goes, and that means uh, that the real miracle, the real meaning, doesn't come from death, but from birth from new, new men, new women, new ideas. Oh, exactly. You know, as I like to say, initium et homo creatus est, and there's a little thing, and it says that a beginning be made, uh, God created man. She goes, I call that natality. I like that, but what about the world being made up of lots of unique individuals, spontaneous men, women, and children? And she goes, oh, I call that plurality. She has her own word. Oh, I like that. May I bum a smoke? <laughs> And then it goes on, and here's a drawing of truth crashing down on a diverse population. And, and it's precisely this force, the facts of natality and plurality, that totalitarianism is designed to smother. So they claim to know the truth, but instead of one monolithic, all-knowing truth, and here you can see the green. This is more what freedom looks like, a million billion truths acted out in public with every passing second. Messy, you bet, but consider the alternative. And he takes a drag and says, I like it. So moral of the story, everything is connected. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. I'm going to set Brooklyn up. Um, so Brooklyn, like I said, is the co-creator and illustrator of the Lumberjane series, which I have one here, but there's many outside, and he brought more. Um, <laughs> and there's more, there's stacks of these at my house because uh, my, my kids and I love Alan's work. Um, I'm going to describe Lumberjanes in this way. <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong. I call it a radically inclusive feminist kids' adventure series for all ages. Um, so for old people like me and young people like my daughter, who's probably drawing a Lumberjanes right now. Um, and uh, I love these books. They're so fun and so um, wonderful. And so I'm really excited that you're here to talk about them. Awesome. So, I'm yeah. excited to be here. Yeah. I'm a little bit nervous. Um, I'm not so great at public speaking, so uh, if anybody's got any pointers, throw them up here. You're doing good well, so far. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I spend a lot of time just drawing by myself, so well, this is... A little bit scary, but um, I'm super excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, like you said, uh, Lumberjanes is, um, we strive to create something that was centered on female friendship and, um, oh, thank you. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, oh gosh, I'm already turning red. Um, <laughs> We tried, we, we tried to make something that was um, as inclusive and fun and, and queer friendly and had female friendships um, at the center and nobody's, um, the conflict is never about, you know, over a boy or about them being trans or queer, like that's never the conflict, everyone is already um, 
totally awesome the way they are. And we, the creative team, which is me, um, Grace Ellis, uh, Noel Stevenson, who does uh, Nimona, and um, Shira, the new Netflix um, series, plug that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Shannon Waters, who works at Boom. Um, we all had a shared love of like Saturday morning cartoons, and so um, The Lumberjanes is very much like, it's as close to a Saturday morning cartoon as we could make it in comic form. Um, and they all met at camp, so this, that's kind of how it all came about, was um, they were trying to figure out uh, a new series, and they had like, like a Google Doc, and they were just sort of plugging in, um, just like sentence ideas. And one of them was um, Girl Scout, but with monsters. So that's, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Lumberjanes was born. Um, I've actually never been to camp, so a lot of this is, when I'm illustrating it, it's very much like I wish fulfillment or like, I think this is probably exactly what, like everyone who goes to camp must have this experience. Um, <coughs> Yeah, so we started out with a comic, and then we made the jump to chapter books to bring the world to like a new audience, because not everyone is super keen on reading comics. Um, but this is, this is, these are all going to be pages from the third book, which is the, yeah, the good egg. Um, and each book, we, there's four in the series. I'm working on the fourth one right now. Um, it's trying real hard to get it done, and uh, we'll have a fifth, uh, like a bestiary, um, that, but each book centers a little bit on a particular character from the Roanoke cabin. Um, just real quick, I guess I didn't really even explain what Lumberjanes are. They, it's a magical camp in the woods. Um, it may have started as like a, kind of like a Girl Scouts camp, like a finishing school or something, way back when like turn of the, the other century, <laughs> a couple centuries ago. Um, and then morphed into like a camp for hardcore lady types. And we said lady types because we wanted to leave it open. It's really anybody who wants to be a Lumberjane um, is welcome to be one. So um, yeah, so the, the head director looks a lot like Rosie the Riveter and one of the older um, camp directors uh, we don't really know how old she is. There's a lot of mystery surrounding the camp and the, the woods is kind of its own character. Um, there's lots of cryptids and um, like Bigfoot, Yetis, um, those sorts of creatures just living their lives in the woods and um, the Lumberjanes interact with them quite a bit. And we wanted to, um, particularly in this book right, the third one, The Good Egg, we wanted to sort of highlight how it's important to observe nature and not make any assumptions and let nature tell you its story. We have Barney here on the left. It used to be a um, scouting lad, but then they felt like they should be at the Lumberjanes camp, so they became a Lumberjane. <laughs> a Lumberjane? A Lumberjane? <laughs> Um, <laughs> what is language? Uh, so they came to to um, to the Lumberjanes, and 
they're forever thoughtful, very quiet, um, very kind, and they go on an adventure with Ripley in this book um, because Ripley is kind of like a feral animal all by herself. Like she's always in the woods and she's always coming up with things like, I found this, I found this. And so she runs back to camp and she's like, I found this, this giant nest of eggs and they hatched and Barney is like, this is an excellent time for me to um, practice my observing skills. So Barney um, is observing the nest and Ripley's like, oh, like I, I hope like he or she or was sort of gendering the egg and um, Barney's like, well, we don't really know, so we, we can't say for sure, and we'll just observe the nest and find out where they, um, they end up finding one egg. I'm not going to spill too, too much, but they kind of have to co-parent an egg <laughs> um, that's like the size of a basketball and find out like where its parents are and get it back to its parents or, or parents, don't know. Um, but I think one thing we really wanted to uh, highlight is with with the Lumberjanes, they, and I, I do think like camping in general has kind of been more of like a male-centric or male-dominated um, sport activity. Uh, and the idea of like going out into nature and nature has, has to be conquered or something. Um, we wanted to have, make more of a space for, um, for, for women and gender non-conforming people to go out into the wilderness and, um, and engage with it, but not, like, not conquer it. So that's kind of what this book is about a little bit. Um, and like I said, it's all about friendship. So we have our rival, um, Cabin, <laughs> um, Zodiac Cabin, who is always like kind of undercutting, um, not undercutting, but like they will, they're always kind of competing with uh, Roanoke, but they almost always come in and help them out whenever they need a hand. So they showed up on Jeremy the Moose. Uh, we, yeah, we try to include. Um, a little bit of like the camp culture in each book so you can kind of feel like you are also a Lumberjane, like you have a little bit of Lumberjane knowledge as well and then we try to make it look a little bit like the old like Girl Scout manuals or something. Um, obviously, like, I don't know how practical any of those are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like the ambush and like traps. Um, but we also try to um, give nods to like actual information. Like, this isn't American Sign Language. You should check that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and in creating the creatures, um, at some point some griffins show up. And instead of making the griffins, um, like I wanted to kind of push like what a griffin looks like. So I took a lot of different types of birds. We have um, this one kind of looks like a cockatoo or something, and that looks more like an owl. This one is a puffin, bless his heart. Yeah, so I have like a lot of fun just in letting my own imagination go wild. And making the jump from uh, illustration or from comics to just illustrating a book, 
Um, I tried to keep as much of like the sort of frantic energy that I put into the comic into an illustration. So this is, I guess, oh, I tried to pack like one scene into one <laughs> image, and it's them um, passing the egg back and forth like a basketball, which I guess maybe that's a spoiler. Sorry. <laughs> um, yes, that's the end. <laughs> okay, thanks. The last person to speak is going to be James Stern. Uh, I mentioned before, whoa, where's my intro here? Okay, that um, James, uh, his new book is Off Season, published by Drawn and Quarterly, which is a great comics publisher. It's probably about everything that they publish. Um, but first, by <laughs> outside, um, James. Um, came to us from Vermont, he, where he helps run uh, the cartoon school that he co-founded, the Center for Cartoon Studies, which has so many great uh, young artists come out of it. Um, it's, it's, really a, uh, it's really changed. I'm actually really jealous that school didn't exist when I was young. Um, uh, let's see. Like I said, he's a contributor to the Slate and co-founder of uh, The Stranger. I've been a fan of Stern's work for the last 20 years, and um, I feel really lucky that he's here uh, in Charlottesville. So, um, take it away. Thank you. Um, this is exciting for me. Thanks for all coming out on such a uh, really beautiful day to come inside. In Vermont, this would never happen in the spring. No one plants anything, because <laughs> if it's a nice day, no one's going to go inside in the spring. Uh, it's really... Uh, privilege to be with these esteemed panelists, and thank you, Craig, who's a wonderful cartoonist in his own right, to be hosting us. So um, I'm going to do a, a little reading from the book, um, followed by a little uh, kind of DVD extras, and then I'll end with a reading as well. Closing night. I was backstage when the cast did a Q&A following their final performance. The story is about inequality, so a feminist take on it seemed obvious to us. Napoleon is now literally a male chauvinist pig. I suddenly noticed Lisa standing next to me and could no longer focus on anything else. Using animals as human stand-ins is as old as storytelling. As an actor, it's liberating to wear the mask. The summer theater on the Cape was on an old army base. Linda did everything from making costumes to passing out flyers on Commercial Street. I helped build the set. I had a huge crush on her. A five-year age difference is nothing now, but at that age, it was enough for me to keep my distance. I think we exchanged 10 words all summer. Lisa had just graduated from high school and I was headed, excuse me, Lisa had just graduated from high school and was headed to Brown. I had just finished college at Keene State and had no idea what I was doing. Lisa shifted her weight and her arms touched. A jolt of electricity surged through my body. I was painfully aware of the summer slipping away and how desperately I wanted to have something happen. But anything I could... Anything I could think of saying sounded so cheap and ridiculous. It was Lisa who seized the moment. Let's take a walk. We wandered out of the theater and onto the dunes. Lisa insisted we wear the papier-mâché masks. 
And if I say go-go, you have to spin with your eyes closed. I already can't see. Lisa told me she had dropped acid earlier in the evening. I was crestfallen. So this was why Lisa was suddenly interested in me? What happened, Snowball? Everything's changed. Everything? Lisa had another tab and invited me to join her. I had never tripped before. How long does it take to kick in? It already has. My trip is your runway. Stick out your tongue. We left behind our masks and wandered the dunes. At some point, one of us said we had no idea where we were. This struck us as the funniest thing we had ever heard. My heartbeat, indistinguishable from the far-off waves, Lisa right there with me, understanding it all perfectly. There is no middle ground. Yeah. <laughs> we followed the sound of the water to a low tide. The sunrise was a revelation. Lisa and I together. Impossible. Inevitable. For the few remaining days of the summer, we remained inseparable. When Lisa's parents arrived to pick her up, they barely acknowledged my existence. Lisa and I made no promises to each other. We didn't have to. Then, six years of girlfriends and boyfriends, friending and unfriending, relocations and long absences, and uncertain reunions. So you don't want me to come? Hello? If you want the job, you should take it. So you want me to come? Hello? Say that again. Despite what we thought at the time, the marriage was less a bold act than an end to an exhausting courtship. <laughs> by the authority vested in me by the, by the laws of the state of... Soon after the kids arrived, <laughs> trick or treat. Ooh, it's Elephant and Piggy. <laughs> Both Lisa and I insisted on taking them trick or treating. So for this one night, we are all together as a family. Trade you my Twizzlers for your Milky Way. A month ago, I couldn't, I couldn't have done this. Maybe not even now, if the evening wasn't already so surreal. So no eruptions tonight, only disbelief. Lisa and I are estranged. So um, as you can... Um, Tell. This is a story about a, a marriage, uh, a marriage uh, of a couple who are coming apart against the backdrop of the 2016 presidential election. And uh, Ken had mentioned peanuts before, and that was definitely an influence, that kind of melancholy vibe. You might have noticed people have dog faces. And uh, <laughs> so I was going to just talk a little bit about the, the origins of this story. Um, I had actually started it a year, well, a year before the 2016 election season. Uh, I had moved into an old goat farm and hired a contractor who we had many close mutual friends. And it turned out I wasn't paying attention and I have a horrible contractor story. Um, and suddenly I'm looking at all of this stuff he charged me for and didn't do and other people's um, settlements with him and um, I was like, oh my God, I, I, I wasn't 
paying attention at all. Uh, and it really kind of, um, I had that feeling that ha most, half of America, well, more than 50, more than the, the popular vote of America had uh, in 2016. Um, and that feeling was one of um, anger, maybe some shame, um, and it was the only thing I could think about for a little while. Um, and that kind of kind of took, became part of the story. So when I started uh, placing it in the 2016 election season, um, there was a lot of things resonating between what happened with me and the emotions that I felt and kind of pouring it into the book um, and what was happening with the country. Um, this is a scene from the book. Around midnight, I checked the Facebook and see that Mick had posted. Mick is this kind of crooked contractor. Um, and, and there's a chapter in there called Attack Dog. And, and uh, I'm going to quote H.L. Mencken here, who I find myself quoting a lot, who was an a, a American journalist, essayist, um, born in the late 1800s, died in 1956. Every normal man must be tempted at times to spit on his hands, hoist the black flag, and begin slitting throats. <laughs> and I'm a more mild-mannered than that <laughs> as a card. So I, I draw comics instead, which keeps me out of jail and helps me deal with whatever um, my, my, my anger issues. Um, he also said, I'm going to quote H.L. Mencken again, for every complex problem, there is an answer that is clear, simple, and wrong. <laughs> and I think I'm drawn to fiction because you're not providing that one answer. You're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a messy set of circumstances. Um, this is another scene. I fell asleep putting the kids to bed and didn't find out till this morning. Hey, it's me. Just dropped off the kids at school and wanted to see how you were doing. You were probably up, you were probably up, late, last, uh, probably up late watching it go down. I know how hard you worked for Hillary. I'm really sorry. I hope you're all right. So in the book, she's a big supporter of Hillary, uh, Lisa. And um, he, said, he tells her I love her. Um, one more quote by Mencken, and then I'll stop. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of this land will reach their heart's desire at last, and the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. <laughs> Mencken. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so for me, the process of making this blur, uh, book is I, I basically worked on index cards, and each little chapter is a little vignette. Uh, and I would take these index cards and buy one of those, like a 99-cent store or Walmart's or whatever, and I would uh, those four-by-six photo albums. And uh, I'll just and I use these photo albums. I use them as sketchbooks, and I really like how kind of intuitive you can just start pairing images and putting things together. Uh, so I'd use them as sketchbooks, and then I started writing with them. These were the very first pages of this kind of like dog at a, on a beach. And I didn't, I, I had these sitting in my studio for years, and then I, I had the opportunity to go to a, an artist colony in 2014, and I was like, yeah, I'll, uh, November of 2015, excuse me. And uh, so I grabbed them with me. And then, then uh, uh, I got there, and this big project I was working on, I, you know, you, you do, you sh I, advice to artists or writers, always have two projects, the one you're doing and the one you're doing to avoid doing it. Uh, <laughs> so this was, I was avoiding doing another project, and then suddenly it became the project. Uh, so I would kind of map things out on index cards. I would 
kind of scribble some notes on paper sometimes. I kind of, my writing can get ahead of my drawing because it takes a while to draw something, but the writing goes fast, much faster. And then I would draw them on index cards and I could tack them in my studio or put them in my little four by six thing, thing to, uh, photo album, as you can see. And then I can keep just flipping through it and seeing how they, they read and how it flows. And you could see some of the roughs from the piece that I just read. Uh, and then I would watercolor them on little pieces of watercolor paper. And you could see what that looks like. And uh, I would use a uniball, a dip pen with a G-nib, brush, appropriately enough, uh, a an ink wash, Payne's gray. And then I'd scan those uh, watercolors in and I'd work on Photoshop for all you geeks out there that this is interesting too. Uh, and I would massage the color. Um, and my parents' handwriting works its way into my books and my golem book. My dad uh, did a, score, a baseball scorecard. So I asked my mom in this chapter, uh, he goes home and his mom has put these affirmations all over the house. So um, and he's, oh, this is weird. Uh, I love and approve myself. So when my mom came to visit, I had her write out affirmations on <laughs> index cards. And, uh, and then I photoshopped them into the book. And then each little vignette became its own little photo album. And then I would add photo albums between photo albums. And I would start just going through it. The very first one I did uh, was off-season. And I'll end with uh, another short reading. Off-season. It was my weekend with the kids, and we drove out to the main coast. The wind was fierce and cold, and no one was dressed warm enough. Jeremy, don't get your clothes wet. Before the separation, the family would, would come here every August. We'd all pile into one hotel room. Inevitably, one of the kids couldn't sleep, so neither would anyone else. Good night, sweet dreams, Edward, the end for now. Again! <laughs> there would be the annual fight, too. Lisa wanting to eat out, me insisting on making sandwiches. It's called a vacation for a reason. Lobster roll, lobster roll, pizza, pizza. Maybe I should have checked the weather or realized there's a reason no one goes to the coast in November. <laughs> Less than an hour at the beach, and we head into town in search of hot chocolate. The place is a ghost town. We pass the gallery where Lisa and I, before kids, bought a painting together. I had never bought art before, and I remember thinking to myself, I'm now a guy who buys art. <laughs> I genuinely liked the painting. Lisa liked it because it was kitschy. All the little cafes are closed, so that leaves the convenience store. Kids don't know the difference. Can we get gum, too? Maybe two people liking something for different reasons is only a fight that hasn't happened yet. It's only 2.30, but it feels much later. It's snowing. Can we go home now? We do get gum and chips and trail mix and take off before we even check into the hotel. We sold the painting at the garage sale. Lisa didn't want it, so I wasn't going to want it either. For me, the beach, even on a shitty day, is still the beach. 
I'll bring the kids back when the weather is warmer and everything is open. I'll also find out then if I'm still the type of guy who buys art. Thank you. sharing how you uh, came up with this. So I'm going to start with this. The title of this panel is Empowered Graphic Novels. And I think that's kind of a catch-all because all three of you come at this from different angles. But can each of you talk about that power, about how graphic narratives can operate differently than text alone? Um, maybe talk about some of the things you did. I, I know in all the examples, I've seen things that I can point out. Well, I think uh, you know we're very visual people are, especially in this age of Instagram and everything. Um, so I think we interpret the world a lot through what we see. So that adds a nice um, part of the language, part of the rhetoric, if you will. So I think, um, and I also think that this whole thing of telling stories with pictures isn't new. Uh, you know, it goes back to the Parthenon, it goes back to the, the ancient Egyptians. So I think that's a nice tool to put into narration, our, our pictures. Yeah, I, I kind of feel very uh, much the same way in that, like, uh, I'll build on that. Um, uh, I, I had a really hard time reading. I still do. I, I, don't, I don't read very much. Um, like a book, like, when I get the script to draw this, just reading the script will take me like, a week. It takes me so long to get through a 200 page thing um, and that's just I'm just not very good at um, reading but I'm great at listening and I'm great at uh, reading pictures um, so growing up the sort of my saving grace was the all those like classics illustrated that they, they would just put so many <laughs> shout out it's, by the way that's hated by the real aficionados <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that's what I mean that's the only reason why I could tell you what happened in Moby Dick or, you know, yeah. <laughs> but That's such an interesting point because I, you talk to um, people say, uh, who, who bemoan the loss of literacy, but I think what we're seeing is this visual literacy, which, which isn't any, it's still literacy. And, and what you might not be able to, um, a lot of readers might not be able to get through a book, but, but they look at an image and if the cartoonist does their job like, like, like you do in a, an image, you can dig in and see all these different layers of information and you're literally reading that image. Um, I, I really, I mean, the medium you can just do, I mean, for instance, like my characters are all dogs. You might have noticed that. And it, it would be hard to do that in a, um, in a prose novel. And I only put the dogs in there because it was almost like a placeholder. You know, it's just, okay, I'll draw dogs in my sketchbook until I figure things out. And then the more I drew them, the more normal it field, felt. And then I was just thinking about the political moment and how like the most bizarre things are happening now. And mm -hmm. they just seem normal because we get used to them. And I thought, oh yeah, okay, dogs, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> um, and that's something that could only happen if you're working in a, in a visual medium. And I think basically the other thing is, is that, and I found it, and maybe you found it, is that there, like I didn't know about the color green. I, I was a placeholder <laughs> for me. And you, you know, we, we do things maybe as quote unquote a placeholder, but maybe they're really not. Maybe right. there's like a 
nonverbal reason that we, we do it or something. Doesn't like Kerouac talk about like uh, first thought, best thought or something like that, like going with one's yeah. gut? That's great. Well, can each of you talk about how you ended up doing this work? I think you all had very different paths um, from, you know, little kids scribbling, which I assume all of you were, or all of us were, um, some were doing it right now, um, and to where you are now. In other words, how you kind of came to do this work. I don't want to start. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'll start. Um, well, I mean, I knew um, from a very early age that I, I, I mean, I was the only kid, and um, I sort of just like grew up on cartoons. Like those were those were like my my friends. Yeah, <laughs> still are. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I I remember getting. Um, I never thought about like I knew I wanted to be an artist because I, I always liked to draw, um, and I felt like oh I'm like good at this, and I knew that that was a job you could have, um, but it didn't really. Um, until I was watching um, the Lion King VHS that had like right before the actual movie started they were like stay tuned for a little behind the scenes look on how it was made and I was like oh my god humans made this <laughs> I don't know why it took me it but took that's a real aha it. moment though yeah, because was, yeah. you're just swimming in it before then right? yeah I was like I was you know pausing the TV and like tracing <laughs> and then, and and then, then what happened at that moment I was like, well, I want to do that. <laughs> yeah, um, count me in. Yeah. yeah, but then I went to. So and I it's went like to, a bait and switch. Then you have to. It do. is. <laughs> it really is because um, in so many ways. But what happened was I went to um, I went to Ringling pre college program in Sarasota, Florida, and it was um, I went there as like a fifteen year old. Like you go there before you go to college, and you get sort of a idea of what. Um, you know, you're going to art school is going to be like, and you get to take your beginning classes. So I got to take my first animation class, and it was 100%. Um, there was no drawing; it was just all technical. And it was because they were teaching you like the Maya program, and they really want you to go to basically like they want to train you up to go to Pixar to be like a modeler or whatever. That's how it was at the time. It was a while ago, um, but I realized. I was like, well, I hate that, and I don't want to do that at all. And <laughs> so now what am I going to do? Um, then I realized I really like the things I liked about cartoons was I loved the storytelling, and I loved the art, and um, I realized that you can, in the world building, you can do all of that with comics, and you can do that by yourself. Or with a team. We have a team. But, um, yeah, so that's how I got to there. Uh, I can, uh, I, one thing to just point out, um, I think it's this way for a lot, and it's some, it might, might be exciting for you, like some of your work might be doing what the stuff that you read as a kid now to this new generation. Um, you can tell, oh, that's not the cover of my book. All right, the um, cover of my book has a big uh, house on it, and it's basically Snoopy's doghouse drawn really big. I wanted to, um, to commemorate, because um, for me, Peanuts was like, this incredible, remarkable, like, I, you know what blows my mind to this day is, is like seeing an image like Charlie Brown's head and at once you're just super aware that it's this cacophony of abstract shapes, the squiggle and the dots, and then at the same time it's Charlie Brown who has a soul. Like, not, like Beetle Bailey doesn't have a soul. I'm sorry, Mo. <laughs> <laughs> but he does. Um, Charlie Brown, Linus, they have, they, they have like interior lives. So to be able to see this kind of abstraction in this like real living thing, 
at the same time was really powerful. And um, that set me on a course, you know, into like Marvel comics and then like underground comics and then alternative comics. And, and then I think for all characters, um, again, not, not to be, um, I think we all share this quality and, and my characters have also season of doggedness. Like you have a culture that says like drawing isn't important and art isn't important and they're gonna cut a budget. It's usually the art that goes first. And there's just something that if you're gonna do this, you just have to be dogged. You just have to like say, oh yeah, well, screw you, I'm gonna do it anyway. And just kind of dig in your heels and just keep at it. And, um, and I think probably everybody in the arts kind of probably shares that dogged quality, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I, um, so my dad uh, went to art school, so we always had paper and pencils around the house. So that I, when people say like, how do you become a cartoonist? I'm like, get some paper and pencils. <laughs> um, but I was always looking for stuff that was cool, you know, that, and it, a lot of it ended up having pictures in it, whether it was Mad Magazine or uh, National Lampoon when it was being published, and I would occasionally see things that would just like blow my mind. And then when I was very young, I figured out, like I, I was the first kid, I'm very proud, at the Alan B. Shepard Elementary School. <coughs> uh, anyone know who Alan B. Shepard? <laughs> yes, he was an astronaut of some kind. But in any case, I figured out how to draw Santa Claus first, like in first grade. And like all of a sudden, I was like really popular. Like, <laughs> I figured out like how the belt and the buttons worked and the beard and stuff. And I could make things. So that, for me, that was like really always cool that I could just like make something with a pencil. So that's kind of how it started. I, I, my dad worked for Mead. The notebook company. So we had pencil and paper around all the time yeah. too, and, and trapper keepers too. <laughs> well, uh, this is a question that's a little off making work, but can you talk about how you guys uh, make your practice sustainable? In other words, do you make your whole living off of making this work? Do you do other things? Don't have to reveal too much if you don't want. But I think it's important for especially young artists to know that there's it's how, what it's like. Well, I'll, I'll jump right in. I mean, I teach at DePaul. That's a day job. Um, I hope to get to some point where I can live the artist's life. That's when you're in the penthouse apartment and you have a butler. <laughs> um, they, there's like an art table there and you do that. and then you A go little to bell the, when you want right, your tea. You, you go to a cafe. Um, so that's my career goal. Uh, but you know, I do a lot of, you know, I think most artists I know are, are doing a lot of things. And, they didn't tell me this, um, you know, my date books are insane, and, but it, it's all stuff that I kind of like doing, so it's juggling. Yeah, yeah, I, um, so when I first started doing um, Lumberjanes the comic, I was working at Trader Joe's, and I was mostly doing that, and then like I'd come home, and I lived in D.C. <coughs> at the time, so Reynolds is super high, um, and so like I, like I couldn't, be a full-time artist there, but um, I remember being at like a panel and Lumberjanes had like really kicked off and was becoming pretty popular. And um, I was on a panel with um, Babs Tar, who had just been picked to do Batwoman, uh, Batgirl, <laughs> and um, she was so like she came into comics and she was like, "Boom, I'm working for DC and I got that DC money and like this is what comics are, right?" Um, and that, like that's not. Really <laughs> um, for most people, <laughs> and um, the the moderator kind of went down the, the line and was like, you know, talk about like 
what life was like for you before Lumberjanes and what it's like now. Like, where, where are you working now? Um, and so then I was like, oh, well, before, and Grace Dallas was the same. Grace was like, well, I, w I worked in movie theater. And I was like, before I worked at Trader Joe's. And then we were like, and now we still do that. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we still do those things. <laughs> um, and Babs was just like, what? <laughs> I tell that girl. Like, I don't understand. Um, so yeah, like, it, there is that artist's life. Um, but I mean, thankfully, I've, I've put out enough um, put enough work into Lumberjanes that that's sort of like my sustaining source right now. And then I moved out of DC so I could have a, a better quality of life. Your dollar goes a lot longer, farther, I don't know what the term is in Richmond, Virginia. And um, yeah, so I can, I can focus more on that stuff. Yeah, I, th I think the artist's life, it's definitely uh, a bit of a hustle mm -hmm. uh, for sure. I, I, early on for me, I, I decided that the comics I, I want to make, that the ones that are most important to me, I, I just would not see that as a commercial pursuit. So I never thought I was going to sustain myself doing those. Uh, I, if, I, if that's all I was doing, I, I probably couldn't. Um, and I've always had a lot of different freelance stuff over the years. And, and now I have like the, the, the most awesome day job ever. I, I run a cartooning school and I get to you know, meet with amazing visiting artists and the students and fellows and, and help them make books and edit, I've uh, worked on a series of books called Adventures in Cartooning for Younger Readers and, um, and I oversee a, a book of uh, graphic biog biographies with Hyperion Disney and I'm working on a book about democracy right now and it's all, uh, it's, it's good but you know now I'm in my 50s so it's like you know it was a, it was a hard climb and a couple years ago, I met this contractor I might have told you about. <laughs> suddenly, I was in debt again. I was like, oh, God. But uh, anyway, um, but I, I think also, like, I think kind of, like, when I think about all the crappy jobs that I had when I was younger, like, that's just grist for the mill. Like, that's how you meet people and learn what life is like. And I don't think I would have, you know, if, if you had the means to just support yourself in your work, what would you, like, write about? Like, Drawing all day? Yeah, like, I don't know. Like, it's, it's interesting. Like, I, I worked in advertising for a long time and absolutely hated it when I did it. And now I look back and I think I actually learned a lot and there were really cool people in it. And, you know, I got to do a lot of good stuff because I'm not doing it anymore. I skated. <laughs> but, Ken, you were saying earlier that some of that advertising work helped you, like, as you went to your book on how to shape a scene and yeah. how, to, how to write. Yeah, yeah. I had to trick myself because I didn't really know how to make a 200 40 page book and I just said well it's just like you know 90 30 second commercials <laughs> not selling anything but I knew I learned you know over a long time quite seriously how to tell uh, abstract stories with pictures and words and I learned a lot about layout and I learned a lot about typography and I learned a lot about color and at the time I didn't think I was learning anything I just thought I was like angry but <laughs> now I look back at it. We can learn from our anger. Well, speaking of angry, uh, do you guys have any questions for me? Uh -oh. So let's keep them nice and keep it short. If you want to comment, you can talk to them afterward. Um, does anyone have a question? Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the economics of Did you guys all hear that? Yeah. Okay. The, the economics of publishing? 
You know what? It's so all over the map. I mean, there's there's all these. Um, I think for me, there, there's this equation. Sometimes when you go with these bigger publishing houses, you might make more short short term, have a lot less control. Whereas, and, and, and then if you go with a smaller publisher, sometimes you have more control over the aesthetics of the book, no one telling you what the cover should look like, um, and you might not get an advance. You know, so there's so many variables. It's a, it's a really difficult question to answer. I will say that, like, and you could probably speak to this as well, like, it's a heck of a lot less work probably illustrating one of these than yes. doing a bunch of comics. <laughs> Comics is so, I mean, I could make more money selling sneakers in Indonesia per hour than I do <laughs> drawing comics. Um, it, it's a really labor-intensive medium. Um, and unless you really have other compelling reasons to do it, um, you know, it, it's, not, it's not for economic gain, that's for sure. No, you don't, don't, don't go into it for the money, that's... <laughs> yeah. Um, it's nice if you get some, but... Eventually, eventually you can. Yeah. You know, maybe if you hang in there long enough, it's, it's I mean, a war of attrition. A thing that's probably difficult for us as artists, I don't want to speak for them, is um, like, don't tell anybody, but like, I love doing this so much, I'd probably do it for free. <laughs> um, but if they pay me, it's like, whoa, I got $100 for something. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, and I guess, you know, I don't know. I mean, this book came out in October, and I don't know who the audience is. I don't look at the sales, I don't care. It's like, don't ask, don't tell. I, I just, like, I did it, I'm just, that's it, you know? Yeah, but also there's the internet, too. So you can, you can just publish it online, and then you have all the freedom. Yeah. And you got the whole That's audience, a great point. You know? I, I think the, the, the Latin, like, to publish, like the Latin term root is like to make public, so you make it public anyway that's being published right? yeah so um so, yeah uh, we were in the book together and we both thought that we would like a graphic novel of the actual book that's been written or maybe it's the next in a series uh, do you have any advice you can give us about how we should even do this how, how should we get that started uh, or what should we consider in doing in doing it paper and pencil yes start with paper and pencil um, so you you would want to find an artist to draw it for you? Is that what you're saying? Or are you going to draw it yourself? Like I mean, um, the interesting thing is uh, I'm, I'm a real fan of Will Eisner, and I never really knew until I read Contract with God, which I love, graphic novels, and it really moved me. And I'm a writer, so I was not really into this. And I'm thinking, how do you translate the written word into a graphic novel? Well, one thing I think, you know, and I, um, so... I did a lot of work for the New Yorker trying to do those little one panel things. And you learn, and we all have learned over time, you know, and I learned it through my advertising work too, you never want to see and say. You always want it to be additive. So you've written this thing that's a whole thing that right. is, you know, so you, you know, you probably have to break it down and, you know, what, what can I tell visually, you know, and what do I need to use verbally? Um, and maybe try and tell the whole thing without words and then just put whatever words you need. Because it's a visual medium, right. fundamentally. Mm. I like your storyboard idea where you need to inject the cards and I thought it may come up with some background or something. 
Yeah, another really cool um, trick I saw, and this is just writing in general, I guess, is uh, there's a young adult novelist named Joe Knowles, um, and, and she comes and gives some writing workshops at the cartoon school, and she just talks about, she kind of breaks down each scene she does with little drawings and index cards, like an app visual outline, and then she has like just two words to describe the scene. So when she looks from scene to scene, she can see what the emotional tenor is and what happens, and as she's juxtaposing them, um, it gives her a sense of kind of like the rhythm of the book, mm -hmm. and she finds that, um, and I, I know a lot of the cartoon might students be, have found that very helpful. She might be a good place to start. Any more questions? Does anyone have, oh, yeah. I have a question specifically for Ms. Sturm. Sturm, yes. Uh, or you could call me James. <laughs> James, okay. Um, I mean, I think one of the real uh, great things about graphic novels is how you can control comment and the pacing of the panels. And I noticed in your new book, it's all um, two, two panels for every page. Yeah. And I wondered, but just from the reading, you could see there was pacing and there was some that, that were just no words at all. Could you talk a little bit about well, I, it is definitely about time, and, and even within those panels I read, it goes back in time and forward in time, and um, this is one thing, you know, it's a, it's a visual depiction of time, and this is something I really love. I, I was volunteering at the local VA, uh, it's like a mile up the street from the cartoon school, and I was working with veterans who, who suffer from PTSD, and one of the things we were doing is taking index cards and just talking about where they were at at that moment and you know and, and where they'd been and what was going to happen and we started arranging them on a page so they could kind of get a sense of a beginning middle and end and um, it was really interesting to see them start because because when you suffer from PT, I mean, I'm not going off on a tangent but I think the, the, the thrust of it was that like you're trying to integrate past present and future and if you can't do that um, it's really hard to function, you know, because you want to have some aspirations, you want to kind of know where you're coming from, and you also want to be in the moment. And I think comics, at its heart, kind of does that on the page. And this gets back to an earlier question about why do this thing and, and, and the economics of it, and, and would you do it for free? It's like, I have to do this to function and understand the world on, on the most primal basis because life just keeps shooting stuff at you. and in order for me to take that in and, and make sense of it, I want to then kind of break it down, put it into little boxes, arrange those boxes on a page so it makes sense. Um, so what I was doing with the vet veterans was no different than kind of my own process to use comics. So it's a really a, a, a therapeutic term. And I would just, I know I'm blabbing here, but the last thing I would just say is that when someone talks about a graphic novel, you know, if you write down a few impressions and pictures on an index card and just put them together, even if it's four of them, one doesn't have to do a graphic novel. That sounds like so ambitious and crazy and intimidating. But if you just throw a few index cards together, it's like that's, that's a good start. I don't know if I answered your questions. I sure talked about <laughs> <laughs> So, um, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I do think that rhythm and time, we were talking about it this morning a little bit, and I do think that timing, I don't have the answer, but I have a suspicion that timing is, is very important. Even in a single panel cartoon, there's a sense of rhythm to it. So I think that's important. Yeah. So let's stop.
Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, before, hold on. There's books outside for sale. They'll be outside to sign. Be happy to draw on your books, Phil. Yeah, later on at 4.30, we'll be like at Telegraph Gallery, <laughs> right around the corner by Mud House. Um, please let the book festival know that you enjoyed this panel, this specific one. We enjoyed yeah. it. Thank drawing. you very much.